You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 41 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. You can find us broadcasting on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as the Star Wars Report website. Our episodes are even found right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman. And with me, like Wes Jansen to the Wedge Antilles, I am the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Good to be back for another week of SWBTF, which is the, you know, Initials we never use outside of typing. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we may be getting rid of those according to a forum uh, or a uh, website alteration we're talking about over at the Star Wars Report. Oh, see, this is news to me. See see how much I'm kept in the loop? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just discussing this last night, in fact. Uh, speaking of things, though, that, that have just come out, uh, why don't we uh, talk about our contest really fast? What? A contest? What? You haven't been paying attention to the last episode? Correct. We have a contest going on right now. At this point, you have one week still to enter if you're listening to this on the actual release day for this episode. I have a copy of the Star Wars Del Rey 2012 sampler that was an exclusive to San Diego Comic Con, Celebration 6, and New York Comic Con. Which is kind of odd. It's like an exclusive that was at three freaking places. So it's exclusive to those, <laughs> uh, but not exclusive if you attended all three of them. You could have got it in all three it's, of them. It's trice exclusive. There you go. Uh, what you basically got here is a little sampler that has excerpts from several different recent and upcoming novels, but also quite a few of the recent Star Wars Insider short stories collected into this book. So if you're looking for a collected anthology of them, this is the closest that we have to them right now. And I happen to have come across a second copy of this, so we're going to give that one away. You're welcome to enter that contest. What you want to do to enter the contest is email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com and you need to put contest in the subject line you need to make sure that in the body you've got your name and your mailing address in case you do win this contest you have all the way up until the 15th anniversary of the Star Wars Timeline Gold and my 33rd birthday but the, the timeline is more important than my birthday uh, that is <laughs> October 17th which is one week from the release date for this. Uh, when it switches over after midnight Eastern time to October 18th, that is it. That's the deadline. And sometime on the day of the 18th, I'll be drawing the winner and then contacting the winner to then ship that out sometime later that week or very early the next. So one week from now is your deadline to get those entries in. Good luck. Wow. I'm suddenly older than Nathan, too. Wow. I'm an old fogey. Not by much, though. Thank goodness. That's all right. Anytime that I'm talking to my fiance, who, depending on the time of year, is either nine or ten years younger than I am, always winds up with me uh, being like, really? Really? Like, we were talking about, uh, hey, do you want to read, maybe read some of these Star Wars books that are around here or any of these kind of things? Should I leave them out for you to read? She's like, read? I'm like, dang, she's, she's totally a device person. Uh, uh, <laughs> there's a generation gap already between the two of us. Although I will say... Um, uh, very proud to be able to say that she has finally gotten her first career job. She just graduated from a medical reimbursement technology stuff uh, from Harrison College just relatively recently. And uh, just out of the blue, 
got a call for an interview, went in that day, got the job. So finally, we are two career adults about to get married uh, instead of uh, trying to sort of find a place to, to for her to work around here, some hospital or something for her to work around here. So very proud moment for that. Uh, it's, a, it's a good time of year, despite all the school stress and the fact that we're probably about ready to have rain almost every day amidst the pollen down here. <laughs> Let's go. See, me and my wife are the same age, and for one whole month, I'm a year older than her. <laughs> nice. See, did you, is there the, the ribbing now? The uh, uh, See, you youngins just wouldn't understand and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I, I, I get my little lady, and then the old woman comes back a month later to beat me up. That's, that's, right. that's the running gag. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm told whenever I kind of scrunch up and do that, like, one eyebrow really kind of thing, that when my I get the wrinkles on my forehead, you're like, it's like Yoda. I'm like, you realize he's <laughs> he's like 900 years old, right, dear? <laughs> Look this old, you not. <laughs> when 33 years old, you reach, have this many gray hairs. Hopefully you will not because they're a sign of aging. I'm going to cry. Now, anyway. All right, so what are we talking about this time around? You want to introduce it or should I do the honors? Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars... And so do we. This episode, we return to our recent X-Wing series coverage to begin looking at the X-Wing comic series, Omnibus by Omnibus. We're looking at the Omnibi. We begin this episode with Volume 1. This features Rogue Leader, the Rebel Opposition, and the Phantom Affair, as well as the X-Wing entry in the Star Wars Handbook series. Consider this your spoiler warning, though, because here we go. Awesome. Now, may I start with the question that timeline geeks like me are really interested in perhaps hearing, but uh, that is not the biggest bearing of the topics we're going to talk about. We were talking before the show about this, and you had asked a question about where these fit in the timeline. And Rebel Opposition is essentially, it, what, where I've found it placed is between the Jawas of Doom issue of the Marvel series, yet before Diplomacy, which is the very next one, my first Star Wars comic ever aside from Return of the Jedi when I was a kid. Um in that it's very, very early in that sense, a week after the stuff that we saw with uh, Jedi and Bakura, and then the later ones show up after that one-month mark where all the Marvel stuff has ended. But you had made the question, you'd asked the question, because I guess the omnibus gives the dates. See, I'm looking at the individual issues here. Could you fill us in yeah. on what the dates right. are in well, the omnibus? So when I'm going through it, okay, our first one, we open it up, and it's shortly after the Battle of Endor. And then in the first thing, it talks about it literally being a week. Uh, then we get to the next story. And, you know, and I don't have an issue with this. The question came when I got to the third one. But the second story says it takes place, uh, I flip one last page, approximately one month after the Battle of Endor. Now we get to the third story, and it jumps to approximately two months after the Battle of Endor. And the only reason why it rose as somewhat suspicion is in the middle story, Wes wrecks his X-Wing and gets pretty messed up and is being hovered around in a hover sled. And it seems like at most a week has gone by because he's still pretty much in the same condition. And that's like, okay, I'm supposed to buy a whole month has gone by? Okay. All right. So, I mean, that's that's not too bad then. Rebel Opposition, 
you know, if it's in, you know, if it's after a month, you know, that that's right after the Marvel stuff. So that makes sense. And, you know, maybe the mission just takes longer than, than we're given that's, to believe, I suppose. That's what my first, that's what I was, I was expecting you to be like, well, yeah, it starts out at that same exact week and then it, it continues on and the, it, the adventure takes place for over a month period kind of thing. I was expecting something like that. You have, uh, such, you have such faith to think that I'm going to remember the specifics of having read this comic back in 1996. <laughs> I know. Such then, faith. When we were getting close to doing this, I'm like, man, I've only read that thing once. I, I barely even remember half of this stuff. I was like, I, I just got done rereading it, and I, I got to admit, I like, I like the varying arts. Uh, but one of the first things that when we open it up, and I found this, I'm going to read it, and I find it very a poignant little part. The fighter squadrons of the Rebel Alliance were the home units of many great heroes in the battles against Palpatine's galactic empire, but none were more renowned than the pilots of Rogue Squadron. But it was after the turning point of the Battle of Endor when the Rogues, under the leadership of Wedge Antilles, proved their true importance to the New Republic. With an assortment of different fighter craft and an ever-changing roster of pilots, Rogue Squadron was instrumental in keeping the Imperial Remnants in check and allowing the fledging New Republic time it needed to solidify its political and military base. Here are the Rogue stories. The thing I like about this is like, okay, yeah, Rogue Squadron technically it starts out they were Red Squadron, we saw them in A New Hope and all that, but it, it really kind of tells you that, that you know, their main story takes place later and it's more a tale of the New Republic. And I like the fact that, that they, you know, these missions are very critical to what's going on in the books in terms of the, the on again, off again with the Empire, uh, it, you know, and, and the, it, it's interesting, too, because in the books, some of these comics are kind of referenced subtly, you know, like they mentioned, like there were other conflicts and things like that. Like they don't go to, to too great lengths to draw attention to, them, but just enough that you knew that there were certain things out there. And, and the way that that opening goes, I, I just I love it. And then you turn to the next page and this is another little interesting detail. We've got the handbook at the end, but this one's got the the. Uh, the front, top, and side views of an X-Wing, a T-65 X-Wing, and it gives you all the details, the parts, and all that stuff. And I thought that was a little interesting little piece that they put in right there at the beginning as well. I've got the Omnibus, of course, you know, unlike Nathan, who's got all the singles at this time. And that's one of those things, like, if you get the Omnibuses, they're so fun to have as a book, but yet there is that added quality of when you get them in the singles, you get the little writer, uh, the, the editor letter in the back, and little details like that. You get all the extra covers. I don't got extra covers in this. I just got like a cover for each one, and that is it. There's nothing in the back that's got all the covers collected. Um, that that's that's it. There's literally three covers. Boom, it's done. And let's also, I guess, as we're heading into the story uh, of this particular set of storylines, because it is an omnibus, it does collect different stories together. Uh, that the one we actually start out with isn't even technically an X-wing Rogue Squadron story. I mean, it is X-Wing Rogue Leader. This was a series that was written by Hayden Blackman with art by Tomas, I guess it's Tomas instead of Thomas because it's a little accent mark, uh, Giarello, that actually came out about a decade after the X-Wing comic series had started previously, back in the, the mid-1990s. So we're actually starting out with something that's not technically a part of that broader overall X-Wing Rogue Squadron series, and yet it's compiled here because it is an X-Wing story and it has many of the same characters in it. 
Now, does is there any other rogue stories aside from the movies and stuff as them as Red Squadron? Because I was under the impression that this is the first time we see them named Rogue Squadron. Not as I recall. I don't remember there being a lot of stories of them as Red Squadron. I mean, there are various piloting stories, and you've got other ones. You know, you've got the bits and pieces like the X-Wing Rogue Squadron number one half from Wizard that I think was also the same one they did as that special edition when Empire Strikes Back came out that some theaters got. But you don't really have a lot that's not in this omnibus that ties directly into them. And and truth be told, there's not a lot of stuff that ties into this series in general. When people tie back into stuff for X-Wing, they usually go for the books. They don't tend to go for the comic series, which has always sort of made the comic series to me feel like sort of the stepchild of the overall EU's approach to Rogue Squadron because it is a an oft-forgotten series, uh, which sometimes might be a good thing. The series certainly gets off on somewhat of a slow, awkward foot to start with. But so sure would that, that would that analogy then mean that the games are the ugly stepchild? The games, I would say, are the. Uh, it, I don't know. It, uh, the games are from the a secret love child off to the side. <laughs> the games are from a completely different family. Uh, the games are the Jon Snow, perhaps, uh, to use a Game <laughs> of Thrones reference, uh, of the series because they sometimes tie into these events or the events of the games, but or, or the broader EU. But for the most part, they're somewhat self-contained, and you don't expect them to, you know, they don't expect people to know about the books or the comics in order to understand what's happening in those games. And the games don't tend to be referenced in, in these other works. So I'd say the games are almost like a separate concern, you know, which is good, yeah. I guess, now, given the fact that we're past that generation. So unless you're using backward compatibility on the Wii to play old GameCube games, you're playing either on a previous system to play those games or, uh, you know, you're, you're using the backward compatibility thing. It's the only options that are available. And with the Wii U coming out, that will not have backward compatibility for GameCube, only for no. That means the new system coming from Nintendo, um, this sort of generation and a half system, is not going to uh, allow you to play those old Rogue Squadron games either. But I guess we're getting somewhat far afield. <laughs> what, what did you yes. think of this bizarre, ten years later kind of entry here with X-Wing Rogue Leader? I, you know, I liked it. I mean, I... It didn't become apparent to me until I got to the second story that this one was obviously done much later because I, I the art was popping. I mean, it was it was crisp. It's a, it's a style I love a lot. The second one, not so much. The third one, I kind of go back and forth on. Uh, but, you know, I, I love the placement of this. I mean, okay, we got the, the Truce of Bakura. That takes place literally like the hour after Return of the Jedi gets over. This is like... A week later, they're kind of coming back to it, and they actually reference that book in a line, and I love, I love that. It kind of gives you a placement of where it's at in the EU. We've got people like uh, Ten Nub, who uh, we've seen flying a B wing in the movies as well, and in his character, you know, kind of. I he because of the fact it took ten place ten years later. That was the thing I didn't realize at first because when I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, Ten dies in this, and I'm like. Is that like one of the first EU characters? And then, I, you know, as I thought about it more, I'm like, oh no, this didn't. This wasn't as early as I was thinking it was. Obviously, I like the fact that it's almost like they're recycling when it comes to the different uh, Celestins. You're like, oh crap! Uh, it's, again, this is ten years uh, or six years ago, ten years after the previous ones, and we do give you the spoiler warning up front. Uh, ten Num is a character who either dies or otherwise meets a fate that removes him from Rogue Squadron by the end of Rogue Leader. But there is Dlur Nep, who is another Sullustan, 
who is a major character in the X-Wing Rogue Squadron comic series that was the long-running comic series, the one that starts with what, to those who are reading the Omnibus, is the second story, The Rebel Opposition, and it, it felt weird to me. I went through, actually, I hadn't read these in ages, and I went through today, before I knew we were going to be recording, and I went through and read through the storylines that would be in that first Omnibus. I just read the single issues real fast, and I read Rogue Leader last, because Rogue Leader was the one released so much later, and it was ah. jarring to see this other Sulliston amidst the team I wonder if that was as jarring to other readers who had read the original series, or if it's just the fact that I had just read them so closely back-to-back. Sullistons in Rogue Squadron don't seem to have very good luck with the whole staying alive for a long time thing. (laughs) They're the red shirts. (laughs) They're the red shirts. They're the big-eared red shirts, uh, which makes you... You you got two lips, you're a red shirt in Star Wars, buddy. And you know what's funny? As soon as we said they're the red shirts, my mind flashed on one of them in the red B-Wing attire. And in my head, I heard nine numbs from Return of the Jedi. Does that make me sick? I'm probably I'm probably somewhat sick. Just a little twist. You know, one of the other things I noticed, you know, I mentioned that it seemed like this was the first time that they were called Rogue Squadron. I want to say chronologically this is. I want to say, because Luke goes, we're a pretty ragtag group. And Wedge goes, I don't know, Luke. Rogue Squadron to me. And at that point, you've got Luke and Wedge. They're in their X-Wing fatigues. You've got Ten. He's in his B-Wing fatigues. And Wes and Tycho are showing up there in their speeder bike fatigues. And there's literally only five of them at this point. And I thought that was kind of interesting in and of itself. And then, you know, they they go through the process of, you know, getting out of their gear, getting into their street clothes for the night. At the end of the first issue of that story arc, Luke is in an outfit that looks... Uh, very much reminiscent of the old Marvel era, and they seem like they are referencing the Marvel era a bit. You know, they they are actually based on indoor still at the time, very much like in, as I mentioned, Diplomacy, that issue back from the Marvel series. Um, but then, basically, it looks like Wedge, sort yeah. of, he looks like he raided Han's closet before he left indoor. He's well, going to Corellia... Does Luke have, like, spare clothes for Han just in case they run into each other? Oh, hey, I got your spare outfit, by the way. It's like, and it almost even looks like he's got the Corellian blood stripes and everything. I mean, he really does have that that Han thing going on with his uh, his uniform. But I think one of the things I, that stands out to me, you mentioned the artwork here. The story in and of itself, relatively throwaway. It's a week later. It's Rogue Squadron on Corellia, and, or on Corellia and other planets in the Corellian system. And they're working against an Imperial Storm Commando guide named General Weir. And we're essentially, you know, we always have the different names, Empire Reborn, the New Empire, whatever. You know, there's all kinds of these, you know, they're the One Sith, they're the Sith Empire, etc. You get all these names for all these times where Darksiders or uh, evil people try to take over the galaxy. Um, in this case, we have the Counter Rebellion, is what Re- Weir says he's trying to start. Not quite as catchy as Crimson Empire, but hey. Um but it's, it's just kind of a quick throwaway story. It has some emotional impact from a character, you know, again, either dying or otherwise being removed from the squadron and such. But for a very throwaway story, it, it didn't really grab my attention because of that, because it sort of felt like, yeah, you know, been there, done that. But I will note that while really? the story itself didn't jump out at me, the artwork did. Except for a few times when Luke looks like somebody's beat the crap out of his face. Um, the artwork is actually quite good and somewhat darker in tone 
than what we get with a lot of the artwork in the X-Wing series. Some folks may remember that the X-Wing series became somewhat known for a more cartoony style. I loved the artwork of about the last half or so of what we got with the X-Wing series, and the stuff for the first half was usually pretty good, minus the first story arc. This art, it's not quite as cartoony, but at the same time where it goes more into realism, it's more in the way it uses shadows and such, rather than, I guess, the way the characters' faces look. Um, it's a yeah. cool art. It's a very cool art style. It's interesting that this guy hasn't been back to do a lot of Star Wars artwork, but that's what jumped out at me. It wasn't the story of it. From an X-Wing standpoint, the story is completely throwaway. But really? it comes to giving me visuals mentally when I'm reading other books about X-Wing characters or the X-Wings in dogfights, this went a long way to giving me those mental visuals over the last half decade. Uh, very striking work, particularly when it comes to things like the Starfighter combat. Yeah, I love the Starfighter combat. I mean, I, I'm actually surprised that for me, I really enjoyed the story. I saw it as a handing of the torch. Uh, you know, the art, like I said, I love the art. Mainly, it's the space stuff that I really enjoy. I'm not a fan of the faces. Uh, Wedge, he captures well. I had a real problem with Luke and Tycho. I kept thinking, okay, I kept thinking Tycho was Luke, I, off and on. But there's a scene when they're on Corellia, and another thing about Corellia is, is the aspect of it was kind of neutral, and yet now we got the Empire coming in. I, I enjoyed that aspect of it as well. But Luke's sitting there, and, and he's talking with Wedge, and he's like, I, I still have too much to do. And Wedge is like, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to rebuild everything that Vader destroyed. And Luke goes, I've put my ghost to rest, but the fate of the Jedi does right on my shoulders now. And I love the fact that we got the fate of the Jedi reference there, which was not intended at all. But the, to me, that's, I think, the, the key here is why Luke isn't in Rogue Squadron later. And I think that's the whole significance of this story. That's true. That's true. We do get that, that passing of the torch. I think... You know, it, that, first off, that was something I had forgotten from the story until I reread it today, quite frankly. Um, I did like that aspect of it in the conversation between Luke and Wedge near the end of the story. At the same time, though, I think given the fact that this came out in 2006, by that point, we just kind of assumed that he handed it off. I think this suffers the same thing, I think, that uh, Shadows of Mindor did, which is the, yeah, this is a reason why Luke isn't in this particular position in this post-Return of the Jedi era, but we had assumed that for so long, I don't really need you to tell me a story to give me that. If that's the reason it's being written, okay, but it, that's not... No yet, more Lando ATT, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's not enough to get me, uh, as Leia would say, that isn't quite enough to get me excited. Well, you know, I, I don't know. For me, I, I just, I enjoyed it. I, I liked it. I thought it was a good story. Maybe it's the fact that I didn't realize when it came out. Um, I don't know. That could be it. The... There's just such beautiful imagery of it, especially the space battles. I think that for me is the is the number one thing here is seeing how it plays out. But you also see, like you know, like I said, ten when ten what ten goes through in this episode was kind of cool. And again, I wasn't thinking about when this came out. I was like, oh my gosh, a movie character! Whoa, what are they doing? And you know, yeah, when I put it in that perspective of well, this came out in 2006. Yeah, it's not as impressive as I was originally thinking it when I was reading it. But I was getting a kick out of it. It felt like interesting how, you know, Wedge is like, 10, go after him. We're going to round up. And I'm just like, why are you sending any guy off by himself? Uh, you know, this is never good. This is a tantamount to saying, I'll be right back in a horror flick. Let me be, uh, uh, let me be totally antithetical real quick to 
who I tend to be when it comes to Star Wars. I tend to focus on the chronology stuff. I was going to say chronological and chronology, and somehow it came out as a mangled pronunciation with weird emphasis there. But I tend to be the chronology guy. I really focus down on that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you, they don't really make much in the way of references to Ten Num's time at the Battle of Endor. Uh, not in, in many overt ways. I guess they mention it once. It's sort of like a quick little profile thing. Until you said that, I had utterly forgotten, even while rereading today, that Ten Num had anything to do with Return of the Jedi. <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, there really is that. It, it's not a bad story. It is a good story. It's a fun read. But at the same time, it just it. I guess it, it's one of those things that just didn't have much of an impact on me. It is a, it was a solid throw of the football, but the football was a nerf one. <laughs> oh, I will say this that I did notice some things like Tycho. In this, he's saying things like wizard, and there's all these little subtle rogue squadron like swears where he goes, "I love having a Jedi on our side." He he kind of came off more like Wes in this than he does in the books. In the books, he's so quiet and stoic. You know, and that was like that to me was kind of hard putting into perspective this other version of Tycho. But then again, at this point, he hasn't had a lot of the name blame and and the loyalty stuff that was dumped in his lap that we see in the book. So maybe that also is some character development that we see through you know just reading these in a chronological order versus when they were published order. This is true. And I guess that should move us along. I guess we're probably good, what, 20 minutes in almost. I guess that should move us along to the second storyline, which was actually the first of the X-Wing Rogue Squadron comic book series, the ongoing comic book series, and that was X-Wing Rogue Squadron, The Rebel Opposition. This is a four-issue story arc, all called just like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, with a story by Michael Stackpole, who did the novels, but the actual script by Mike Barron, who... I think was also the guy that did, for instance, the uh, Heir to the Empire adaptation where he took the, the storyline by Zahn and then turned it into the comic book series. Um, pencils in this case were by Alan Nunes. And I think you said it best right before the episode, before we started recording. I was complaining about the fact that of all the different parts of this series, um, this storyline just doesn't connect with me. And I'm not entirely sure if it's because the story itself doesn't, but the fact that the artwork is so god-awful for this era of Star Wars. It's competent, but that's about all I can say about it. It doesn't fit with the rest of the series at all. And you said it best, I think, when you said it was like it's the 1970s or 80s again. It's yeah. like this is the, the, the Star Wars newspaper strip artwork applied to something in 1995, 1996. Yeah, early Marvel, Peter Parker, when he just came out. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that far, but it, it, is, it is, I mean, it's it's rough. What we've got here, essentially, in this case, is a story where they're on Silpar, they were actually on their way to Merlist, or however you're supposed to pronounce that thing that doesn't have enough vowels in it. Uh, and uh, they wind up, this is where they meet El Scoloro, this is where they meet Groznik, the, uh, the big Wookiee that keeps an eye out for her because he had a life debt to, I think it was Thorm, or Thom is how you say her husband's name, Throm. Yeah, it's at Throm, T-H-R-O-M. And, you know, it's them essentially facing off with another of these little, you know, former imperial factions or factions that are still loyal to the Emperor even though he's dead. Uh, you've got a very basic squadron here. You have Wes, you have Tycho, you have Hobby, who apparently nobody bothered to tell Mike Barron that Hobby is what he's called, not Derek. Yeah. Because over and over again, he's referred to as Derek, and I'm thinking, who is Derek? 
And now, was that in this one or the third one that he references that he is called Hobby by his friends? Yeah, it's called Hobby by his friends, and yet they call him. Well, see, that's the thing. They call him Derek. But there's oh, no, point. it's in the third one. Okay, yeah, in the third one, they make point to say that Derek, but my friends call me Hobby. Right, and they say, and, and they still, you still call them friends? But they, they say in this, okay, <laughs> yeah. they, they say his name as Derek repeatedly. And the weird thing is, there's a point where, in the first issue, Wedge is getting down from his X-Wing, and this odd green-faced alien, okay, comes up and says, you know, let me help you down. And he says, thanks, Derek. Let's get the X-Wings under the rock. And then later on, just a few pages later, he refers to Derek again, only this time it's Hobby that he's referring to. So I don't know if there's a character named Derek, and then there's Hobby, and Hobby's name is Derek, and he's just saying Derek to both, like Matt and Matt if you get two Matts, or what the deal is, because it's it doesn't make sense in that scene. Were they meaning for that? They corrected it. They've corrected that. Oh, they corrected it. Okay, okay, okay. So Let you, me help you down. Thanks. Let's get these X-Wings under the rock. Two more coming in. So there's Shaba no, wait, to these people. But there, no no Derek there anymore. Interesting, because, see, yeah, yeah, Shaba, I guess, is who this green character is supposed to be, because he says it in the next panel. Shaba, do these people know the Emperor is dead? But, yeah, in the original comic, first printing at least, top left-hand panel on, let's see, page story page one, two, three, four, page five. It's, thanks, Derek. And I'm sitting there going, who is he talking to? So the artist didn't know who in the heck they were supposed to be referring to, or the writer, or both, and neither one of them is referring to him as Hobby anywhere within here. It, that in and of itself kind of jarred me. Uh, you have, like I said, you have a limited number. You have Plur Ilo, who at this point is just she's the cranky lady who's bald. She has, I don't care for her. She's yeah. she's just the way she is always after Tycho. Just and I understand the plot wise why they're doing it, but man, they did not give her justification in my mind to be such a hate on for him. Yeah, she will wind up being a character with depth later, but so far not so much. Um, you've got uh, Plur, uh, not Plur, uh, that it was Plur, uh, Delur Nep who is a Celestin who gets quite a bit of characterization as this one and the next one go along. It just kind of felt. I don't know, it felt like a limited story. Some of it's used to just sort of, of, you know, we need to explain ourselves. We really are on your side. Let us tell you about our adventures at the Battle <laughs> of Endor. See, we really did blow up the Death Star. I mean, there's so many little things that get me, but it's the artwork that's the worst. This artist seems to think, from what I can tell, that every man looks the same except their hair color. And every woman looks the same except, apparently in this case, for... The, the length of their hair and the hair color. Uh, th there's a point in this story where, look, we need to get in contact with Targeter. Look, Targeter is actually Winter. Winter is always mistaken for Leia because they look so much alike. Sure as hell couldn't tell it from this story. I <laughs> know. And that's where they're making the point. about just The artwork just so, it's such a disservice. My cat's meowing because she's hearing me getting upset. Um, it, it is so... Uh, what's, what's what I'm looking for? It detracts so much from the story. Like I said, I don't know if the reason I'm not fond of this storyline is because of the story or if it's that the artwork detracts from it so much. It is so, well, bad compared to the rest of the series' artwork. It's so ill-fitting that it just, it, it kicks me out of it and makes me, it just, it, it dulls it. It dulls the edge of it. Is it what's the borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry, as as uh, Polonius would say in Hamlet. Uh, the art of Alan Nunes with colors by Dave Nestel and inks by Andy Mushinsky dulls the edge of the rebel opposition. 
Okay, rant <laughs> over. What did you think of this one? Maybe you liked it. I just well, I can't get over I, that this I would say, lasted this long after this first one. I will point out a couple things. One, obviously we're seeing an, adva- an extra advantage to having an omnibus. Obviously, first print corrections are taken care of because uh, I never even saw that because it wasn't in mine. Uh, but I would say this story for me, this story is mainly, a, a, again, a throwback. But And I don't know if that's actually – it is a throwback, but to me it feels like a throwback to Tycho and Winter and how their relationship started. That to me is the biggest thing that goes on in this aside from the fact that they pick up uh, Eliso or whatever her name is. Um, the other crazy things, you know, like I said, it feels like 70s art. We watched the Wookiee. He takes down a TIE or a uh, Imperial Lambda shuttle with a rock. He takes out a TIE fighter with a branch. And we watch an X Wing fly up to a TIE fighter and rip its wing off, which should have tore its X foils off. Now, what the hell was that? I don't know. And, but I do love the fact that Wedge does a little bit of bragging on his own, where he's talking about how, how uh, Lando gets the credits, but he was pretty sure he's the one that took the Death yeah. Star down. <laughs> I, that I love. I love that the whole, you know, he gets the credit, but still, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I was there too. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, it, it's like when that extra in a movie or somebody who is like a forgotten character in the movie is always like, you know, hey, I was in it too. You can look at me in the credits, et cetera, et cetera. I like the uh, four years before the Phantom Menace, we get early in the first issue of this. Uh, I forget who it was. I believe it was a. Uh, uh, Jansen, Wes Jansen, who while they're flying in atmosphere with two TIE fighters on his tail, he does a quick barrel roll, spinning, that's a good trick, and uses it to create oh, enough of turn yeah. to crash the ties into each other. Yeah, what? that was like, a, are you kidding me? Well, well, and another one with Durr, how they play up his hearing, oh, Durr's a, mer- a music lover, and then towards the end, they're like, he hears the Star Destroyer entering orbit, and they're like, how can anybody hear that? You'd be surprised what he can hear. I'm like, are you kidding me? In space, okay. I hear you scream, but apparently the solicited can with the big old ears. You know what's funny to me, though, is when you said that, you said it, uh, another thing with Durr, I was thinking it was just another dumb thing about the story. Uh, Durr? <laughs> You're right. There's Durr. a lot of Durr here. Uh, well, okay, so I mentioned it, it's a Tycho Winter story. I think it also, though, sets up kind of what the Rebels saw when they went to a lot of these planets through Wedge's eyes. He's not being trusted by Elisol. She she has been betrayed. She knows she's been betrayed. We find out there is a traitor in the mix. I, 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 I have to lay a lot of the blame at the art. I think if the art was done in a different style, maybe, just maybe, I would have liked it a lot more. But, I mean, you can imagine the difficulty that Elskol is in, okay? Elskol is leading this rebel cell that essentially her husband was the one who was most involved in, but when he died, she sort of stepped into his role in many respects. She's trying to protect her people. They've been betrayed, and it's got to be really, really hard to find a traitor in your midst and identify him when all the men look the same. Yeah. Well, then you've got Tycho when he actually strolls in wearing the Imperial uniform and the fact that they take him on... I mean, granted, it, it does give you a better sense of the fact that, okay, yeah, he's had the Imperial training, he knows what to say, and for someone who's had the Imperial training, he's able to respond back to with better than, uh, we've had a slight weapons malfunction here, everything's okay. It's like, yeah, you've been trained by the Empire, right, Han? But in this case, it's like one of those things where you just kind of think that they would do a little more research into him. I mean, granted, they have the scene where they ask him, how come I haven't got your notice, I need, I want your orders, this, that, and the other thing, and then he's out there and he's like, I'm going to get shot down by my own R2 unit. And I, I like the way that they tied that in, but it was one of those things where, 
for him on the Imperial side, the fact that he used his own name, it's like, man, that's got to raise a flag somewhere. Well, not to mention the fact, you know, that it's not like there's an active rebel cell or something on this planet that might have gotten uniforms from your dead people and maybe would be trying to get onto your base by wearing them. Surely not. I mean, it, I don't know. It, it, it's the, the, the illogic of that just blows my mind. I mean, you would think that the Imperials, after dealing with the Rebellion as long as they did, would have at least a little bit of suspicion about someone they didn't know showing up wearing those uniforms. But maybe I'm wrong, because on, on a completely yeah. serious note, that's something that's been happening to our troops in Afghanistan recently. The, uh, what is it, blue on green or green on blue um, violence, where we've had people uh, put on American military uniforms, or I guess NATO military uniforms, or Afghani police uniforms, gotten within range of our people and started killing them. But again, that falls under the thing of, okay, we have been at war there for quite a long time, fine. But we at least, you know, are cognizant of that. How many times must this have happened in the history of the Empire versus the Rebellion for them not to check anything? There, yeah. there's, there's, I don't know, it just felt like this was, it, it's the birth pangs, okay? This is the story that it really, it got off on the wrong foot. But fortunately, I guess it's the other way around from what we see with, say, something like Dark Times. Dark Times' first story, pretty good. Nice big shock at the end. Rest of the series, meh. In this case, the first storyline, meh. But they must have had enough faith in it, at least, or enough people buying it just to try it out, that it justified continuing. And after this, it gets progressively better all throughout the rest of the series. It's just that this storyline, it, it, it's, it's a flub. It's, it's a fumble. Well, real quick questions. Uh, now, you know, I've, I've seen in like, uh, rebellion and in, uh, the empire where the Thai pilots, their helmets are removed just so you can see the expression of their faces. Do you think that's what's going on here? Do you think that these were actually meant to be the helmets that these guys were supposed to be using? It was just like an off brand. You know, I really don't know, but see, most of their flying is in atmosphere here though. So yeah, that may have true. made a difference in what type of helmets they, they they're wearing. For those who haven't seen the comic in a while, they're wearing helmets that are much like what we see on the Death Star, where they're like those, like the, it, it almost looks like somebody took a bedpan, put it backwards. Between that and the AT-AT AT drivers, you know, like a mix between the two of them. Yeah, where, you know, your face is uncovered and you got this weird hat that's like pulling down, you know, behind your head. A very odd helmet design, but probably so that we could, again, see the faces and recognize the characters, which we would have been able to do if their faces were at all distinguishable. Now, one thing that I did find kind of odd was, uh, as it gets going, uh, Tycho, he's kind of walking. He finds the supply depot. It's night. And yet he says in his mind, it's still daylight. I shouldn't have to worry about those any of those stinking ronks. And I'm like, it is dark blue all around him. It looks like night. <laughs> and, I, of course, they didn't correct that if that was a mistake. It was just one of those things, like, when I saw that, that threw me off so bad. And I'm like... Every scene, it's night. It's like what? That makes no sense. Maybe it's maybe it's like uh, like Ryloth was or is or kind of is or oh god, oh god, I don't want to think about that continuity. Uh, yeah. I, okay, so I think general general consensus here, the first storyline, Rebel Opposition, is just not a sterling example of what this series can do. Fortunately, it gets better and it gets better pretty quickly. So even within this first omnibus, we have a much more solid story. In the third story in here, entitled X-Wing Rogue Squadron, again, The Phantom Affair, another four-issue series. In this case, what we essentially have are 
Rogue Squadron going to Merlist, or however you're supposed to say it, where uh, Rogue Squadron, now with Eskel as a member, are trying to get their hands, supposedly, on a thing called... And Grozdick. is with them. Uh, trying to get the so-called Phantom Ship, this project that supposedly is being worked on uh, on the planet that is supposed to be this cloaking device that will work for larger and larger vessels. Um, the Empire is trying to get their hands on it, and it turns out that the Imperial man on the planet is Loka Harsk. I believe is that, that's, that's how you say his name, isn't it? Loka yeah, Harsk? Yeah. Who yeah, is Harsk. the man who... Uh, who his actions as an individual uh, attacker, as opposed to as an imperial, led to the deaths of Wedge's parents. This series, uh, this one has some of the most iconic memories that I have of any of the X-Wing comics. In the first issue, you get Tycho having the crap beat out of him by these guys who are part of this movement, this anti-indoor society, or anti-indoor movement, or whatever it's called, uh, whose basic gist is they're kind of like the Nazi Holocaust deniers. Yeah, the uh, that, was Holocaust exact, deniers. that was the exact same reference I was going to use right there. Right. It immediately comes to mind. So you got them giving a speech. He storms in on it. So the image of him storming in on it, that is one that is burned into my memory. And then shortly thereafter, him getting his butt kicked for a while by members of that group, again, burned into my memory. And then we have this ghost Jedi, whether it's actually a ghost or not, is something revealed throughout the story, uh, that pops up. And this is where... I think the art started to get really good. I still prefer the art later in the story, but here what we've got is Michael Stackpole again behind the story, Darko McCann doing the script of this one, so not uh, Mike Barron as in the previous case, but the art is now, both ink and pencils, is now Edvin Biukovic, I think is how you pronounce it, and he was one of the guys who really laid out this, it's cartoony art, but it's still serious and adventurous. He really sort of exaggerates things, and when he does the artwork for the space battles and for the combat, it is awesome. I love this man's artwork for this series. It was a perfect fit. This is where, to me, the series just launches off to hyperspace. It, it, it surpasses yeah. in every way the previous story. See, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence with the art. I, I think the, the mirrorless people, I don't really care for how they're drawn. There's some times where I don't like it, but for the most part, I like the characters. I think chronologically, this is also the first time we uh, meet Merrix, uh, Merrix Tarek. And the fact that that backstory, Wedge's whole parents dying and all that, that was really, really profound little story. Uh, it, it also has a little bit more on uh, on Essel's, uh, how she'd come across her husband and all that, and how she's kind of grieving over the loss of him. The other thing was, okay, when you're mentioning him getting beat down, I, I thought it was interesting that there was actually some aliens in the group. Uh, you know, it was just, to me, that, that kind of struck me as odd. I would have thought that the whole group would have been all, you know, humans. But while that's going down, that's when the Phantom shows up. And the fact that the uh, the Phantom lightsaber is able to injure one of the guy's eyes, you know. And then, of course, Tycho gives him the uh, Captain Kirk double fist punch, which I, I thought that was kind of classic. But, you know, there's a lot going on in this one, and I can see what you mean, how, how it's like a launching point, because really this is, is a core group of rogues. I mean, this when I think of the rogues, these are, these, many of these are the ones that I think of, right off the top of my head. Yeah, see, I don't tend to, except, of course, for Wes and Tycho and such. They still, to me, they never really get the depth of characterization you get out of a novel, because, you know, they just don't have as much prose to be able to use to give more characterization. So these always kind of feel like the second stringers of Rogue Squadron to me. And it gets to a point where we're swapping out members of Rogue Squadron by the end of this series so often that, you know, they really start feeling like 
the second stringers of it. Uh, but this series, it, 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 the, the artwork, uh, yeah, I agree that the character, the, the natives look a little weird. Uh, the ships are done well, the space combat's done well, the character expressions are done well, even though it's a little more cartoony, it's very well done. Kind of reminds me sort of of the way that you could say the Clone Wars looks cartoony and yet is not. It has that serious edge to it. Uh, good example of this, of how he's able to use character expressions in a way that, even though the art is somewhat cartoony, really stands out and makes that emotional punch with the dialogue, is at, as we're seeing the flashback of Wedge experiencing uh, through... Uh, basically a communication uh, thing, not not from actually being there face-to-face -face with them, because, of course, he would have died too, but the death of his parents, witnessing the death of his parents, and then immediately thereafter, there's a shot of basically him staring out the window, and also staring out the window, it seems, is Booster Tarek, uh, one of the few times we actually get to see Booster in artwork. And uh, Wedge just kind of has this far-off glare going on, uh, little rings under his eyes and a scowl, but not like a, a big, like, grr kind of scowl, but a scowl enough to see that he's sort of holding back the emotions. They even have some shading on his jaws that almost make you think he's clenching his teeth. And it says, uh, isn't there an old Z95 registered to your name on this station? Yes, Booster replies. Would you try to stop me? No. That moment in and of itself is so punctuated by the art that it really gives that kick for me to say that, yes, uh, Biukovic, or however you pronounce his name, he's the beginning. He's the beginning of the art of this series, really nailing it. The artwork that's done later in the series, uh, around the time of, say, the making of Fell, or in Masquerade, or Mandatory Retirement, the artwork as we get towards the end, yeah, it's better than this artwork, I think. Uh, it's a little more solid in the way that it handles some of the character edges and, and stuff like that, but... This is really what I think saved the series. I don't think that this series could have survived if it had stuck with the original artist. Because, yeah, the first storyline, people are buying it because it's Star Wars. And, of course, we're always going to buy the Star Wars stuff. But those people who are ones who might actually not buy it, they pick up the first storyline. They want to see it through, see how it goes. They've already picked up the first issue. Let's see if it's a good series. Okay? Had they gone to a second story arc, and had that same artwork going along with this story, I don't think it would have worked. I think we would have seen this series founder or flounder as we have seen so many other series seem like they've, they've kind of gotten off on the wrong foot and then you don't hear much about them anymore. And they just sort of, of peter out. I mean, if something now, like Invasion or Knight Errant, can be canceled under the circumstances under which they are being canceled, this series, I think, should have hit the chopping block if they had kept Nunes doing the artwork. You know, you know, the artwork he does is fit for some things, just not necessarily for this. Bukovic nails it, nails the attitude, nails the aliens, uh, makes Plora seem like she might actually be a sentient being rather than essentially a mannequin with hair. It, it, <laughs> I like it. You know, one of the things I like in the part, you know, with Wedge's flashback, that's probably my favorite art in the entire part, when they got those free-floating parasites on there and when the ship gets first struck, by Wedge. You know, if you go back and pay attention to this scene, you can watch hearts flying in the air. The the Quarren that's holding on to the parasite, his staff falls out of his hand. At the same time, Hearth's helmet falls to the ground. And if you look, you can kind of see where they're going with that. You know, I mean, it's literally just one scene. And then later, once Wedge has destroyed all the ships and Hearth is free floating outside, you find out the parasite's in his helmet. And it attaches to his face. And so he's got a bone to pick with Wedge just as much as Wedge 
has a bone to pick with him. And I think that's one of the deeper sides of this story for me. Uh, another interesting aspect of it, though, was that uh, – where we get here? Uh, when they're flying in the speeder, uh, they go whipping by a crowd. George Lucas is standing in the crowd, of all people. I thought that was kind of a nice little touch there that the artists do. Every now and again, you'll get a little touch like that. Like uh, I believe it's Heir to the Empire where you see uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy walking through one of the open courtrooms. But the guy that was behind the, the, uh, the ghost, the Jedi ghost – and the story there that went along with it. I thought that was an interesting little touch as well. They had this burnout spot there on the ground of the planet where a Jedi had, had gotten involved. Uh, yes, uh, Taj Junik, the Jedi I told you about, surrendered to the Empire so they would leave the Academy unharmed. They burned him on the spot. And so they created this this whole monument around the spot where the torch ground was for him. And all that ends up playing up into the end of the story here. And I just, I love the way that that plays off of itself. But the main guy, the guy that creates the ghost prison, there's some scenes with him that remind me of Crimson Empire style art. In fact, he reminds me very much of an elder uh, Beavis from Beavis and Butthead. That is not a reference I ever expected to hear with Star Wars. <laughs> yes. yes, it's a handicapped Beavis. Uh, but, you know, there's so much going on here. And, and I love how when, when things get bad, they talk about how, you know, the miracle, uh, that from the mirrorless point of view, he's thinking of it as a miracle. He was all right, some of the smugglers fled, but the majority stayed and fought the fire. And how for him, he saw it as a good thing. Like all the good things came forward because of it and due to the rogues and, and the fact that, yeah, their planet might have got tore up, but at the end, there was now a new kind of memorial because of the fighting that they did. Uh, but there's the whole aspect of this fandom ship, and you find out that it's all been a ploy to milk the empire of credits. And so I'm like, where are they going to go with this? Because now you find out Wedge is known about it. You're like, whoa, what's going on? Mirix is finding this out from the guy that looks like Beavis. And then you find out that there's, oh, wait, we, we do have a secret weapon here, a pocket Death Star laser. What? Well, it's not, a, it, it, it's it's a gravitational weapon of some kind. It, it, it's, when it's used, it's like they're, everything kind of warps for a moment and then it's just, you know, destroyed and gone. Uh I like the fact that Wedge's argument in it is to say that it's not so much that the that the rebellion wants these weapons to use them, it's that they want them because they think they would be a better judge of whether or not they should be used than the Empire would be. Which is funny because in a lot of ways that mirrors the way that the United States looks at nuclear weapons. You know, we don't want Iran to have them because of the threat that they could pose. We also didn't like it. When India or Pakistan got them, or uh, China getting them, and so on, or uh, maybe France. I think I, I think we, our negative reaction also applied to France when they got them, and it kind of makes me sit back and say it's the same kind of thing because you know we are people who you know we've we've used nuclear bombs. The only times nuclear bombs have been used in war is us on Hiroshima and Nagasaki three days apart to end World War II. Uh, we got a ton of nuclear weapons, and yet we're the ones out there essentially saying that. You know, we don't want others to have them, but our argument tends to be because we have used them or don't use them as a case may be in a responsible manner. For us, it's a deterrent, you see, not something we'd actually use like Crazy Akhmadinejad, the Twelver, wanting to bring about the end of the world or anything. Um, I like the fact that they play into that, and you got to sit back and wonder, you know, is the rebellion, at the way it's presented in Star Wars, perhaps more moral because of, of George Lucas's concept of good and evil, then perhaps the way that America looks at things. Because I sit back and I look at America and say, you know, maybe uh, there is a point to those who argue the hypocrisy 
of us telling others not to have nuclear weapons, although it's such an important thing from a national security standpoint. Um, I don't know that we have many instances where we could say, you know what, rebellion, you can't, you can't talk about super weapons because you use the things. Um, you don't ha when you say that you might be the ones to make a better decision about whether they should be used, we've seen what you've done with them. Or to be able to say, oh yeah, who are you to decide who makes the better moral decision? It seems like uh, it's almost like an idealized American viewpoint on weapons of mass destruction that we see here with the rebellions or New Republic's viewpoint on these weapons that were being created or uh, or could have been created by imperial scientists and such. I like the the depth of the questions we could get out of such a thing, because I think that's another place where science fiction does well. You know, it it gives us a way to ponder about bigger issues. And this, because of this thing being a fake, and then the other thing being there that they then are able to use the same argument with, I think it opens the door to that type uh, of broader discussion, broader exploration. Well, yeah, as he says, we what we said about the Phantom Ship still applies and applied to the new weapon that they did use. We know if it's best never to use it. But I thought it was interesting that they decided to use it. You know, and they go, it's a portable planet slicer, and I believe it is operative. The professor was ready to use it. Can we use it against the dreadnought? Won't it destroy the planet, too? Uh, yes, and I believe no. The professor provided remote activation, but he never would hurt Merlist. Do we activate it, Wedge? What will it be? Wedge? And Wedge is like, do it. And, you know, when they do it, it ends up warping them completely out. They just, bloop, they're gone. But it was interesting, though, that it was like, you know, Wedge at the beginning of the episode and at the end of the episode, he's like, we know when not to use it. And yet he went on a gamble off that yes and no and went ahead and used it. I mean, that could have backfired and took the whole planet out. This is true. This is true. So maybe it does put them in a little bit more of a, a morally gray area as far as that goes. Now, I know we're getting pretty close on time here. Uh, the, there is also another issue that's included here. It is the Rogue Squadron handbook. They did four handbooks, three of which were considered part of one series. One for the X-Wing comics, one for uh, Crimson Empire, one for Dark Empire, and then eventually they did that Knights of the Old Republic one that was not really part of the same line but in the same vein of these. Is there anything that we want to get into about oh, the yeah. handbook? I mean, the handbook is a good book. You you said I something about, what was it, volume one or something of the handbook? What is in... Like, how many pages of this are in the omnibus? Is it spread out between the three somehow? Well, you know, I don't have my other two here. I'm at the other studio, but this one's got one, two. Am I counting just pages themselves or front and backs? Uh, front is a page, back is a page. Okay, so we got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 pages. Okay. Then, then, yeah, then that's that should be the whole handbook then. it's, it's now, it, it almost made it sound as though there was stuff that was missing when you were describing that earlier. Well, yeah, I, I, and I, again, I, don't, I left those other ones home. I want to say there was something in the end of the others. Maybe that's the cover art in the other ones. But of this, the ones I really want to talk about, the things that really appealed to me were the ships. We have the uh, Bothan-class assault troop carrier, the assault shuttle, uh, you know, you see what that is. There's some info on that. We have the Eldeon, the way it looks, really cool-looking ship. Uh, the one that I think I liked the most, though, was the Uglies. You know, we've seen different Uglies, but this was probably the most unique Ugly I have ever seen. It's got an astromech sticking out the front end like it's the tip of the thing. It's got, an, oh, oh, like, an X-Wing cockpit mirrored with the ball cockpit of a TIE fighter attached to... I mean, it's just insane-looking. You know, I just, I love the ships, 
And that, that going back to our last episode, where we were talking about essential guides and stuff. I always enjoyed the illustrations of the ships. Um, that was one of the other things about, you know, we get a reconnaissance X-Wing, but about the comics, especially Rogue Leader, the, the, the grittiness of the Y-Wings especially, I really like that attention to detail. You know, when Wedge is climbing in, we see a tour seat, that kind of stuff. But the, the handbook in the back of this, I really like it because of all the different, you get the character aspects, you get the ships. Uh, it, it's always The handbooks have always been one of my favorite things as well, because anytime you get these things that give you a lot of, of background information, it's always fun. Yeah, these were pretty cool to have at the time. It's kind of weird that they only did three of them and only on those series. I don't know if it's because they didn't sell well or they were going to be going towards the essential guide. So they said, yeah, let's just drop these. But I actually like the – my favorite thing about it, not so much the images and the quick uh, profiles because, I mean, if you read the story, you pretty much have all the information that's in there. There's not a lot of extra info given. I like how at the beginning of the handbook, it's the evolution of X-Wing Road Squadron by Michael Stackpole. He didn't write this whole handbook. Pete James wrote most of the text, but there's essentially a discussion of the evolution of the comic series from Rebel Opposition all the way up to Mandatory Retirement, which is coming out around the same time that the handbook came out. It's just a quick little two-page article, but it's just like what we were saying in our previous episode about those little commentary tidbits in the Essential Reader Companion. It's cool behind-the-scenes stuff, and it's nice to see the writers themselves or the creators themselves at times look at – Star Wars from an out-of-universe perspective and talk about the process that it's gone through because so often most of our resources are in-universe resources. I like that part, and there's no images on that really at all. Really cool, though. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ones to think about. If you're out there, you're looking at comics, or you're liking Rogue Squadron, the books, the omnibuses are definitely worth your time. Uh, give them a check out. We're looking at twenty four ninety five if you're paying the cover price. Go to Amazon, some of those other sites out there. Find yourself a good deal. Find it, read it, enjoy it. Yeah, and definitely remember that this the approach to reading this, if you're going to pick up all three of them, then it's the same kind of approach you got to take with the A Long Time Ago omnibus series that goes through and reprints the Marvel stuff, or Fate of the Jedi, or even the Tales of the Jedi omnibus series. It starts with the Golden Age stuff instead of the stuff with Ulick and Exar Kun. This is a series that starts off slow. It gets quite a bit better. It gets really good by the end, but it is going to start slow. Stick with it. It is building to something. Um, I, I can see people possibly being turned off by the sheer variances in quality and style of the ones in this first volume. But stick with it, because by the time you get to the second, especially the third, when Soon Tier Fell comes into play, you're really going to be liking the series. That's right. It is building towards something, just like we have been building towards something all episode long. That's all right. The end. This about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Once again, thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen to our show. It's airing on Middle Earth Network Radio, as well as streaming on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Our episodes are also available right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. Hey, just type it in the search bar if you need to. No matter how you get there, though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us while you're listening to the show, you just might actually get it heard. Each month we release our feedback episodes. We're going to have one of those coming out uh, either before or after this. Uh, depends on when I get finished with that, but look for it in your feeds. You ask questions, we answer them. Heck, sometimes we'll even hunt down the answer for you if we don't know it off the top of our head. Remember, you can fire that off to our email at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. 
And don't forget to hit us up with those emails about the contest. Uh, and once again, this has been Mark Herleman and Whistler, the droid that likes to say all sorts of crazy things. Quiet, you. And Nathan, now deaf from Whistler. Saying thanks for listening, and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. Should I have said that? I'm still deaf from Whistler. Don't quote us the odds that Whistler is going to blow out Nathan's eardrums. Well, you're loud, dude. You're so loud. What?